for he owned a beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like his had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty, its strength. People offered fabulous prices for the steed, but the old man always refused. This horse is not a horse to me, he would tell them. It's a person. How could you sell a person? He's a friend, not a possession. How could you sell a friend? This man was poor and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning he found that the horse was not in the stable. All of the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you that someone would steal your horse. We warned you that you would be robbed. You're so poor. How could you ever hope to protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better to have sold him. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. Now, no, no amount of money would have been too high. Now the horse is gone and you've been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, Don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That is all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How can you judge? The people contested. Don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed. The simple fact that your horse is gone is a curse. The old man spoke again. All I know is that the stable is empty and the horse is gone. The rest... I don't know. Whether it be a curse or a blessing, I can't say. All we can see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed. They thought that the man was crazy. They had always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead, he was a poor woodcutter. An old man still cutting firewood and dragging it out of the forest and selling it. He lived hand to mouth in the misery of poverty. Now he had proven that he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. He hadn't been stolen. He had run away into the forest. Not only had he returned, he had brought a dozen wild horses with him. Once again, the village people gathered around the woodcutter and spoke, Old man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded, Once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him, but don't judge. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? You see only a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You read only one page of a book? Can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase? Can you understand the entire phrase? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say that this is a blessing. No one knows. I'm content with what I know. I'm not perturbed by what I don't. Maybe the old man is right, they said one to another. So they said little, but deep down, they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses had returned with one horse. With a little bit of work, the animals could be broken and trained and sold for much money. The old man had a son, an only son. The young man began to break the wild horses. After a few days, he fell from one of the horses and broke both his legs. 
Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man and cast their judgments. You were right, they said. You proved you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken his legs, and now in your old age, you have no one to help you. Now you're poorer than ever. The old man spoke again. You people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it is a blessing or a curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments. It so happened that a few weeks later, the country engaged in war against a neighboring country. All the young men of the village were required to join the army. Only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man crying and screaming because their sons had been taken. There was little chance that they would return. The enemy was strong and the war would be a losing struggle. They would never see their sons again. You were right, old man, they wept. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he's with you. Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke again. It is impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows. Say only this. Your sons had to go to war, and mine did not. No one knows if it is a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. And the author of the story continues, the old man was right. We only have a fragment. Life's mishaps and horrors are only a page out of a grand book. We must be slow about drawing conclusions. We must reserve judgment on life's storms until we know the whole story. I don't know where the woodcutter learned his patience, perhaps from another woodcutter in Galilee, for it was the carpenter who said it best. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. He should know he is the author of our story, and he has already written the final chapter. And I read that to you this morning not to insult your intelligence and not to treat you as if you were little children, but I read that story because the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Revelation chapter 2, some of you are going to find out that what you've been looking at in your life as a curse is really a blessing. And some of the things that you've been looking at your life that you've counted as a blessing, what you're going to find today is those very same things are really, to you, a curse. But like the moral of the story, what we really want is to come to the place that we look at our life, that we look at our circumstances, and we see what God sees. Because, you see, sometimes we look, and we see it one way, but God looks... And he sees it the exact opposite of the way that we see it. And that's the point of the message that the Lord has in writing the letter to the, to the church at Smyrna. And it's the point of our Lord's message to us in this passage. As he says to this church and as he says to us, Do you see what I see? Now Lord, I pray this morning that you would take our time together as we study this this key, key portion in the Word of God. And I pray that You would open our eyes to be able to see what You see that is true in our lives, that is true 
in our circumstances and situations that we're dealing with right now. Help us to leave here today calling things what you call them and, and seeing them the way that you see. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And this morning, and if you didn't get a study sheet, why don't you raise your hand at this time. Our ushers will get one of those to you, but we're going to need to get moving here. We're going to be looking today at the, the second of the seven letters that our Lord wrote to seven churches that were found in Asia Minor. We, we've talked about the fact that there are three layers of application when you're dealing with these seven letters. First of all, there's a historical application. These are literal churches that were in Asia Minor at this part of the, the world uh, around 90 to 95 A.D. Uh, these churches, along with being real churches that are he, where he's writing to them and addressing real situations that they were really dealing with during that period of time, there is also a prophetic application. And, and not too many people uh, anymore talk about this, but you know what? I, I, in fact, I've got a list of... I just started compiling a list from all the books that I could find in the book of Revelation to see those who saw the prophetic application of these. And the list is incredible. All of the people that would be the, the, the biggies today, they all line up with this prophetic application found in, in the book of Revelation. Now, whether they agree with it or not really doesn't make any difference. It's there. And when you see how the book of Revelation is divided, we've talked about that before, very clear that these seven letters to these seven churches represent seven periods of history that pick up where the book of Acts leaves off and takes you all the way through to the, to the rapture of the church. It's, it's a, a compilation. It's an outline of the history of the church. But in these letters also, there is a inspirational or a devotional application. These, these letters to these churches and the things that our Lord addresses to these churches, these are things that are true in churches that have been all down through the centuries. They're true in churches today. We're finding that these characteristics that we find in these churches, we're dealing with some of those same issues. And we spent, we spent several years going through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, looking at that doctrinal or prophetic application. What we're seeking to do right now as we're going expositionally through the book of Revelation, we're looking at the historical and trying to major on the inspirational application, how this actually applies to our lives right now every single day, what we're dealing with in this church. And what we've seen is that there is a very consistent way that the Lord approaches each one of these letters. We've seen, and you can see it on your outline, that there is a commission. There, that is, who the letter was actually committed to. There is a character that needs to be identified. There is some aspect of Christ's character that he emphasizes in addressing each one of these churches. There is a commendation. That is, he is commending these various churches for positive qualities that he sees. There is a condemnation. There is a correction. There is a call. And there is a challenge. And we're going to begin this morning looking at the second letter to the church in Smyrna, looking at the commission. Our Lord says to the Apostle John in verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right. And let's just take a second to familiarize ourselves with, with Smyrna. The name Smyrna literally means myrrh. You spell that M-Y-R-R-H. It's weird spelling, that's why I give it to you. And myrrh is that which is associated with bitterness and death. And I'll tell you why in just a, a second. But that's the literal meaning, meaning of Smyrna, myrrh. In fact, the same Greek word that's translated here, Smyrna, 
is translated myrrh in other places in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, you remember that the wise men presented the Christ child with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The same exact word, Smyrna, here. The other time is in John chapter 19, verse 39. After the death of Christ, Nicodemus came with Joseph of Arimathea to take the body of Jesus to prepare it for burial. And it says that they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Again, the same word translated here, Smyrna. Now, myrrh, or Smyrna, as it were, was a gummy substance that came from a, a certain tree that grew in that part of the world. It was a substance that was very bitter to the taste, and yet it had a, an incredibly sweet aroma. And so this was a, a substance that was used as a, a perfume. It was a very costly one. Only the rich could afford it. And so most of the time, the, the, its use was in the whole process of embalming. You see, that's its association with with bitterness and death. And I want you to listen. It is more than just coincidence that this would be the name of the church that would receive this particular letter from the Lord. Because as we're about to see this morning, this was a church that was experiencing the bitterness of persecution and death like no other church. So that's the name, Smyrna. Let's talk for a second about the church there. Other than what we get from the four verses in this passage and what we glean from what's been handed down to us from history, we know very little biblically about this church in Smyrna. Because this church in Smyrna, though it's located in Asia Minor at this period of time, we can't go to the book of Acts like we can go to most of the churches there and find their history. In fact, the church at Smyrna is not mentioned any other place in the entire Word of God. This is the only place that you find it. So we don't know who actually planted the church there. We don't know what the circumstances were of how it actually came to be that a church was founded there, but obviously there was a church there and a significant enough church in the mind of our Lord that of all of the churches in Asia Minor, the Lord took the time to address this church specifically by way of a letter. Now, the city of Smyrna itself was located about 35 to 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus. We talked about Ephesus last week. And like Ephesus, Smyrna was a very beautiful seaport. It, too, like we saw with Ephesus, was a very idolatrous city, a very wealthy city. But the thing that makes the city of Smyrna stand out among all of the rest in Asia Minor was that in all of the cities, the imperial laws against Christianity were more severely enforced in Smyrna than in any other place in fact, that is the very reason that our Lord specifically writes to the church in this city because of the unbelievable persecution that was going on against those believers in that place. Now look again at verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And we've noted how that in each of the seven letters that our Lord dictates to the seven churches... That rather than saying, these things saith your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what he does is he addresses himself by giving some description or some aspect of his character, and specifically, some aspect of his character that was identified in chapter 1. You remember in chapter 1, the Apostle John was transported into the very presence of the glorified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, and 
he begins to go through in chapter 1 describing the character of the, the risen Christ. And what you'll see in each one of these seven letters is he draws from each of one of those things that we were introduced to in chapter 1 and presents that as he's presenting it to the church. And this aspect of his character that he identifies in each one of these churches, you've got to see that in order for this church to really get the message that the Lord is trying to communicate to them, it has got to be received in light of this aspect of his character. And you'll see how that all comes together and fits together with, with, with this church. You see, what, what was happening in this church is here was a church that was being severely and bitterly persecuted. It, it was a church that you're going to see here this morning would yield many of its members to martyrdom. And the character of himself that our Lord highlights as he addresses this situation in Smyrna is, first of all, he says, and this is so beautiful, y'all, when you really see what was going on there and how he introduces himself, he says, I am the first and the last. Now, I don't know what kind of tribulation you've gone through in your life. I don't know what kind of persecution and suffering you've endured. But let me tell you, what happens to you when you're going through the big, fat middle of adversity it's just real hard to remember that he is the first and he's the last because what happens to you and some of you've been there you get in the big fat middle of the circumstances of your life and you're looking at all of this stuff that is going absolutely haywire and you know what happens to us we start looking at all of this stuff and it looks like the devil's running the show and you find your life, you're being bombarded with affliction and pain and suffering and trial and heartache, you can get to the place to where you begin to wonder, is God even anywhere close, much less is He running things? You ever been there? You ever been to the point to where you're like, where is God in the midst of all of this? Now, I'm not trying to minimize your situation or my situation and the things that we've had to go through for the cause of Christ, but I just want to tell you, I, I'm not so sure that we can totally plug ourselves into what this group of people in Smyrna were dealing with. You know, I mean, we've, we've gone through some stuff, some of you more, more than others. But I guarantee you, what we're called to bear is nothing like our brothers and sisters in the church at Smyrna were called to bear. I mean, th these are people, uh, folks, I mean, some of you that were here during the, the period of our, our study of church history. Uh, you remember, these are people that were being lit as torches to light the streets these are people who watch their kids be thrown to wild animals. These are people where thousands of people would come into the Roman arena and watch the Christians be, be thrown to the lions. They would sew them up in the skins of wild animals and, and throw them so that the, the animals would just totally annihilate what was inside of their... I mean, we can go on and on and on. They would lay them and put them in stocks and, and, and stretch their limbs out. They would put them on, on racks like you put your steak on the grill. And, and they would put believers on those hot grills and, and, and watch them as they burned right before their very eyes. This is the kind of stuff that we're talking about that was going on in, in, in Smyrna. And folks, don't you know that there must have been times when the people in that church in the midst of the, the bitter persecution and suffering and death that they were experiencing, that they had to be at times filled with fear and doubt. And so our Lord writes to this church, and the first thing that He says is, I want you to know something. I am the first and the last. 
In other words, contrary to the way that it might seem, and contrary to the way that you might feel right now, I want you to know something. I'm running the show. And believe it or not, this is all unfolding according to my plan. And you don't have to be afraid. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 17. Remember, John saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His power and majesty and glory. And he says in verse 17, And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead. I mean, He is scared to death. And what does the Lord do? He leans over from His throne to where John was at His feet. And John says, And He laid His right hand upon me and said unto me, Fear not. And watch the reason that he tells John that he doesn't need to be afraid. I am the first and the last. It's the same thing that he says to the church in Smyrna to let them know why they didn't need to be afraid. And it's the same thing that he says to those of us that are in this room this morning who are going through some kind of incredibly persecuting and suffering circumstances in your life. Listen, Jesus is saying to you this morning, I am the first and the last. I've got it all under control. There's not any circumstance, there's not any adversity that you're going to face that's going to take me by surprise. The final chapter has already been written, and that final chapter is me. I am the first and the last. And you see, knowing that, if we really, in the midst of that persecution and suffering, if we really know that, then we can face whatever it is that the world and the devil throws at us, right? We, we, can, we can face it if we know He's in control. I mean, what's the worst that they can do to you? I mean, what is the absolute worst? They can kill you, right? And, and look at the second aspect of His character that He emphasizes in this letter. I'm He which was dead, past tense, and is alive present tense and you see the reason that's so significant is because of what god said in romans chapter 8 and verse 11 listen to it it says but if the spirit of him that raised up jesus from the dead dwell in you he that raised up christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you so you see the worst that can happen is you get real sick or diseased and you die or the persecution gets so intense that they beat you to death and you die well you see all that does is just usher us into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 says to be absent from the body is what to be present with the Lord and I mean it's kind of like the the Br'er Rabbit gig you remember that you know Br'er Rabbit is saying Oh, don't do anything, do anything, but don't throw me in that briar patch. Oh, you know, he's just going on. Oh, throw me in that briar patch. And, and we're like, oh, listen, listen. Whatever you do, guys, whatever you do, please do this. Just don't kill me. Just don't kill me, guys, because, you know, if you kill me, not only will I be able to rejoice in that I was counted worthy to suffer shame for His name and to suffer for the one who suffered for me, but you know what? If you do that, then I'm going to be ushered into the presence of the one that I love with all of my heart and I long to be with with all of my heart. So listen, whatever you do, please, 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 don't kill me. Hey, that's the worst that can happen. 
you remember when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Philippians? Remember what he said in chapter 1 and verse 21? He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is what? It's gain. You know what he's saying? If I live, I'm dead. This isn't my life to live anymore. You got it? I'm already dead, y'all. So if I continue to live in this body, big whip, because I'm dead. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you see what Paul was saying back there in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21 if I continue to live in this body, I've already died to myself and Christ lives in me. And if they kill this body and I die, you know what? All that is is gain to me because then I shed this earth suit. Then I shed this thing that I've got to constantly be mortifying and I finally get to be with the one that I long to be with. And that's gain. So you see, if we'll just know who he is, the character of the one that is watching over our life. And you see, that's what he is writing to this church in, in Smyrna. And he is saying, listen, I know what's going on in that place. I know you are a church characterized by myrrh, the bitterness of persecution and death. And he says, listen, these things saith he, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And do you see what he's doing? What he's doing here is he's reminding them of who he is of what he's done and what he's going to do. So that these believers can just get their bearings back and go, oh yeah, okay, I understand now. And you see, because of that, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bitter or adverse the circumstances that you may face, even to the point of death, you know what the Lord's message to us is? There is nothing, absolutely nothing that we have to fear. Because he is the first and the last. And some of you, I don't know what your circumstances are, but I'll tell you this. Some of you this morning, what you need to do before the, today is all said and done, is you probably need to do what the Apostle, uh, Apostle John did in chapter 1. You need to get at the feet of the Lord Jesus and die. And let him reach down and lay his right hand of power upon you and remind you of the fact that he is the first and the last that he's got your life all under control, that nothing's happening that's taken him by surprise. He knows the end from the beginning. The worst that could happen is they could kill you. And he says, now listen, I've already been there and done that, bought the T-shirt, the whole gig, and now I'm alive, so you don't have to fear. All right, now let's look at the next thing, the commendation. He commends this church for several things, and in so doing, he... He lets us know some of the, the positive characteristics that were found in this church. And we've, we basically hit this first one already in, in just talking about the commission and, and the character. But first of all, let's identify it specifically. This church was an intensely persecuted church. An intensely persecuted church. Look at the first part of verse 9. He says, I know thy works, and we'll talk about that in just a little while. But I'm wanting you to see, first of all, that he says, I know thy tribulation. Now, now listen, y'all. When you are in the midst of intense persecution and tribulation, and the one who is the first 
and the last, the one who has the control of the beginning, the end, and everything in between, the one who himself was intensely persecuted like no other person who has ever lived. Listen, the one who died and is now alive, the one who has conquered death and has given us the victory. Now listen, when you're in the midst of tribulation and then he writes to you and he says, I want you to know something. I know thy tribulation. That means something, doesn't it? And I, you see, it's, this is going to be maybe a hard message for some of you to really start finding application in your life because unless you're going through tribulation, unless you've experienced it, you're not going to be able to relate to the beauty of what the Lord is trying to say to these people. But he looks at them and he says, I want you to know something. I'm not missing a trick. I know every single thing that's going on. And some of you folks that are in the midst of that tribulation, oh man, would you just listen to the Lord as he tells you that this morning? He says to you, I know your tribulation. You know what, guys? He hasn't forgotten you. He knows what you're going through in your life right now. And look at what he says in verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And again, it takes you back to chapter 1 and verse 18. Because of who he is, we don't have to fear, even in the face of intense suffering and persecution. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, that as we stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of, faith of the gospel, he says that we need be in nothing terrified by our adversaries. Oh yeah, we're going to have adversaries, y'all. We're going to have them. But you know what the truth is? Because of who Jesus Christ is, we are going to be in nothing. Did you catch it? Nothing. Doesn't matter what they do. What if they grab our kids and they put them on the on that rack that you were talking about in nothing, terrified by your adversaries? Well, how can that be? I don't know. I just know what he says that as we are striving together for the faith of the gospel in nothing, terrified by your adversaries. Jesus says it here in verse ten: Fear none of those things. I don't know how if I could do that. You know what? The reason you don't know if you could do it because you don't need to do it yet. And He'll give you that grace. And if you'll receive it, you know what? No matter what it is, no matter what it is that they're going to throw at you, no matter what the devil does, and nothing terrified. And none of those things do we need to fear. Go on in verse 10. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Don't ever forget it, folks. When you set your life to fulfilling the Lord's purpose for it, and you're walking in obedience before Him, and you're from the platform of a holy life, you are seeking to share the gospel with people who are still outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you're investing in His kingdom, you can mark it down, folks. You are going to have opposition from the devil. He is going to do whatever he can possibly do to try to find a way to shut you up. And if the tribulation... Now listen. If the tribulation that he sends doesn't shut you up, he may do what he had to do to these believers in that church in Smyrna. He may lock you up and cast you into prison. And hopefully, even that wouldn't shut us up. Do you remember what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? He said, I suffer trouble as an evildoer because of the gospel, listen, even unto bonds. And do you remember the next part? Listen to it. But the Word of God 
is not bound. Hey, you can bind me up. You can lock me up. You can bind me up. But even that won't shut me up, Paul says. And putting us in prison, you know what all that does? If you're a real believer in Jesus Christ, you're applying what he's trying to get us to see. If he throws you into prison, you know what it does? All it does is just change your audience. You just got a different group of people to try to minister to. Given the gospel. Given the gospel. And notice something else in verse 10. When our Lord writes to the church in Smyrna, Rome is in power. But notice that he doesn't say, Behold, Rome shall cast some of you into prison. What does it say? The devil. And folks, don't ever forget, the persecution that you're receiving from your boss or your fellow employees or your family members, and maybe in this country it might come to the point to where it is our government like it was there. Whomever it is, understand this, it's not really them. It's not them. There is a power that is working through them. And you see, when you understand that, it helps you to, to remember what's going on. And it helps you to remember that this really isn't a personal matter between you and whomever it is that is putting that persecution on you. You see, and when you remember that, when you remember that this persecution that you're receiving isn't that individual over there, this is the devil, then you see, you don't have to constantly be facing the temptation to retaliate and to try to get revenge and try to put them in their place when you recognize what the real source of the persecution is and the fact that the reason that it's coming in your life has absolutely nothing to do with you. You see, what, what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 is the reason that it's coming is that the devil isn't finished persecuting Jesus. You understand that? He still wants to get at him. He still wants to persecute him, but he can't get at him. So you know what he does? He gets at those that are like him. You know what? Persecution in your life, tribulation, suffering, you know what? You could not be paid a more higher compliment on this planet than to receive that. Because what it's telling you is you're looking a whole lot like the Lord Jesus Christ to those that are around you, and the devil doesn't like it. And if that wasn't enough, look at what the Lord says actually happens as a result of this suffering in verse 10. It says, we are tried. The devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried. And you know what happens to believers when they respond biblically, when they are tried? Same thing that happens to gold. Believers are purified in that process. Job said in Job 23.10, When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now you see, here's the deal. The devil is doing all he can do to defeat you. He's doing all he can do to destroy you and to devour you. And the Lord takes those same exact things that he's doing and he uses them to purify you and to purpose you and to perfect you. Is that wild? Oh, the devil's going to cast you into prison. Jesus says, big deal. All that's going to do is just try you. And you're going to come through that thing and you're going to be better for it because you went through it. And watch this next statement in verse 10. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. 
Now, he's already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that he's never going to allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. I mean, there's only so far that the Lord allows the devil to go. We may be in tribulation. We may be in suffering or, or cast into prison. But we're not going to be there until the devil decides he's through. No. What we're seeing here is the Lord decides how long it will go on. And you have the promise. It won't go longer than you have the strength to be able to bear it. And evidently, from a historical standpoint, this, this 10 days thing, evidently the maximum prison sentence for the crime of naming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in Smyrna, evidently there was a maximum sentence of 10 days. But, oh, buddy, if we had the time, there is so much more that's going on that the Lord is saying than that because from a doctrinal standpoint, and we spent no telling how long going through all of this, but what is, this is talking about in a prophetic or a doctrinal sense is the ten official Roman persecutions that were leveled against the church during the Smyrna church period from approximately 200 A.D. to 325 A.D., and it's amazing as you begin to study history on your own. I don't care what history book you pick up from whatever slant the author may be coming from. They will all identify the fact that there were ten official Roman persecutions. I don't care. Any denomination, any group on the planet is going to identify those ten official Roman persecutions. And in a prophetic sense, that's what's going on. But that's not what we're, we're all about here in, in chapter 2 today. But rest assured... The Lord this morning, He knows your tribulation. He knows every single thing that the devil's going to throw at you. He knows how long your suffering will last. He knows that He's going to turn that suffering and that persecution and that trial, He's going to turn it around and use it for good in your life. He says there's not one single thing that you're going through or that you will ever go through that you need to fear. But there's a second thing our Lord commends them for back in verse 9. And that is, in spite of its persecution, it still was a church that carried out the work of the Lord. In spite of everything that we've been talking about that this church was going through, it was a church that was continuing to carry out the work of the Lord. Look at verse 9 again. He says, I know thy works and tribulation. And man, this is such a blessing to me. I mean, with all the stuff that was going on and that this church was going through, are you checking this out? Our Lord writes and He says, Hey guys, I know your works. I, I, know, I know everything that the devil is throwing in your way to distract you and to redirect you and ultimately to stop you from doing my work, but I, I see how you continue to be steadfast, unmovable, what's the next word? Always always abounding in the work of the Lord. Oh, you mean even when we're going through that kind of tribulation and suffering? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Even with all the obstacles. Even with all the pain. Now let me ask you something. What does it take to stop you from doing the Lord's work? And I'm, I'm not trying to be cold-blooded here. I, I need to rephrase it for some of you. What was it that caused some of you to stop carrying out the work of the Lord? Because some of you already already bailed out of the thing. But what is it that is going to stop you? 
you know, I, you, after a while, you know, you kind of watch patterns and you watch the things that are, that are going on. And, and in fact, that's what the pastors of the church have been called to do, to give oversight. And, and, and it's, it, it, here's the way it goes, y'all. There's some people and they're moving along great. And, and man, they're praying for doors of utterance and they're, they're praying you know, for opportunities to, to be able to share the gospel. They're seeking to invest their life in building people in, in, the, in the, the faith and in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, the devil moves in through some misunderstanding from somebody else in the church, or there's some he said, she said deal, you know, working throughout the rumor mill, and, and, and somebody didn't respond to this person the way that they thought that they should have responded. And, and you know what? It's amazing. People moving along so good, and that's all the tribulation that they need for the devil to absolutely just shut them down. I mean, they've allowed themselves to get all yanked off, and now all they do... All they do is they just show up on Sunday morning, but they are not involved in the work of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. I just can't imagine what it's going to be when we stand along with believers from the church in Smyrna who went through every stinking thing that they went through and continued to always abound in the work of the Lord, and somebody yanked you off, and now you've stopped. Oh, I can't wait to see that. And then there are others in... You know, boy, I mean, they hear all of the teaching, you know, that, that's, that's done around here about the Lord's work of winning people to Christ and investing your life to get them established in the faith. And they hear about the scope of it, how that the Lord has told us to make disciples in and, and all nations. And, and they get involved and they disciple people and, and they take a missions trip and they get involved, you know, after one of those things, man, I want to do the Lord's work here. And so they come back and they get involved in the Sunday school and, and they're in the back through the week and they're in the Bible publishing ministry. And a lot of them... After a while, they fizzle out. And you know why? You know why a lot of people fizzle out? It's because they didn't get the recognition that they thought they deserved because of all the things they were doing for the Lord. The Lord's work. You hear that? You know what? Those pastors down there, they don't even act like I exist. I don't even, I'm not even real sure they know my name and I'm as involved as anybody else down there. And I don't think they understand the time and the sacrifice that involved for me to do the Lord's work. And so by cracky, I'm going to show them, you know what, I'm just not going to do it anymore. Now folks, listen. Let's understand some things, okay? Let's just be honest. I love you. I appreciate all the things that you do around here. But listen, this isn't my work here. This is His and if you're doing what you do because you love me or because you think that this is what the pastors of this church expect you to do, hey, I appreciate your love and support, but listen, if that's why you're doing what you're doing, do yourself, me, God, and this church, and everybody else that you're supposedly ministering to a favor and just go ahead, I'm not trying to be cold, but just go ahead and give it up now. Because you know what, if that's your motivation to do it, doing what you're doing, it's all wood, hay, and stubble anyway. It's never going to produce anything of any eternal value, much less eternal reward. Folks, listen, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, now that we are saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, okay, now it, our works are not going to save us. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross did that for all of us. But now what the Bible teaches, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, is that now we are all preparing ourselves to stand 
before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to determine whether or not we get into heaven. The judgment seat of Christ is a place where rewards are determined. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Every man's work shall be made manifest to determine what sort it is. To see if it's wood, hay, and stubble, and it'll be burned up, or to see if it's gold, silver, and precious stone, and will be rewarded. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 says that he will also make manifest the counsels of the heart. In other words, why we did what we did. The motive behind the work. And what we find out is it's not just the quantity of work that we did, it is the quality of work. Why we did it. And I'll just tell you, folks, if the motivation for your involvement in the Lord's work around here is anything less then His glory... Hey, listen. Save yourself the frustration of not getting the recognition you think you deserve to get around here and bail out now because if your motivation is a pat on the back, all of those works are going to be burned up anyway. And so you might as well just hang it now. Or redirect your focus and do what you do for Him. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, I know your works pastors or your leaders or those around you never ever ever acknowledge your works the fact that he knows you know what if you're doing it for him that's all the encouragement that's all the thanks that's all the recognition you need isn't it he says i know i know so just keep doing what you're doing don't do it for a measly little pat on the back because if you do it for that enjoy it because that's all you get That's Matthew chapter 6. And then there are others. And what stops them in the Lord's work? What what takes them out of the Lord's work? really isn't this this pettiness or this trivia that we're talking about here. I'm telling you. You know why I'm bringing that up? That's the garbage that we've got to face in the layout of seeing church period. People having little squabbles, and so they're going to show God. You know, bail out of His work. They don't get the pat on the back and they they bail out. Hey, we need to address that. But you know what? There's other people. And the reason that they're not doing the Lord's work is because the devil has just absolutely unloaded on them, just like these believers in Smyrna. I mean, people who go through extreme tragedy in their family, people who are literally beaten and abused for their faith, people who, who fear for their lives and the lives of their, their children. And, and you know what can happen in the midst of that time? And, and you know what? I, I think that we've all got to be listening to all of these things that we're talking about that were happening in Smyrna in light of the fact that things could very well change in this country before the Lord comes back. So there is a whole major application to what we're talking about here. Uh, and I tell you, if the Lord tarries His coming, that time will come in, in this country. But you know what can happen to us in the midst of all of that? We can get so preoccupied with simply surviving that there's nothing left for the work of the Lord. Some of you remember about six or seven years ago, you remember we, we listened to a man by the name of Joseph's son? How many of you remember that? Okay, a few of you. What, who this guy is, is he is an exiled Romanian pastor. He was exiled to the United States and he gives testimony of the fact that how that he, along with the members of his church, had gone through unbelievable persecution and suffering in Romania. 
And, and in the midst of his testimony, do you remember what he said? He, he said that as they were, you know, he was explaining all this, this, this suffering and, and tribulation that they were going through. And listen to what he said. He said, we found that our greatest sin was in our desire to survive. Can you imagine that? Our greatest sin was in our desire to survive. And he began to talk about the victories that he and his people experienced when they no longer feared their persecutors. When they had recognized that they were already dead. And that there was nothing that they had to fear. You know, some of you guys, before you got saved, and and women, you can just kind of imagine. Some of you guys, before you got saved, you were brawlers. You were fighters. You know who the scariest fighters in the world are? It's not necessarily the biggest guys. It's not necessarily the strongest guys. You know who it is? It's the guy who isn't afraid of anything. Some of you men know what I'm talking about. Oh my goodness, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how big they are. I mean, when they don't fear anything, wow! I mean, here you pull up a baseball bat and they just come at you. You, you pull out a knife and they just come at you. You pull out a gun and it's like you didn't even do anything. They just come at you. There's no fear. They don't care what you do to them. And you know who the greatest warriors are in the army of the Lord? It's the ones who don't fear anything. They don't care what circumstances or obstacles get in the way. They're not concerned with comfort. They don't wince at pain. They're not interested in surviving. The only thing they're interested in is the Lord's work. And no matter what weapon the devil wants to pull out and use, they just keep coming back with the gospel. They just keep coming back with the gospel. And that's the way that these believers were in the church in Smyrna. They just kept coming at it. The devil's doing everything he can do, and they just keep coming at it. Is that the way that you are? What is it that's going to stop you from doing the work of the Lord? This is a church that knows what the work of the Lord is. It's the work the Lord did when He was here working. Winning people to Christ and building them up in the faith and sending them to the world. What's going to keep you from doing that? What has kept you from doing it? Why aren't you doing it? What is it in your life that you're just so busy protecting in the midst of your persecution, that it's keeping you from carrying out the Lord's work? What is it that you spend your time worrying about in your situation that maybe the devil might do, and you spend so much of your time worrying about all the implications of that that it has immobilized you from ministry? You're worried about stuff. And you know what? We're dead. What's the worst he can do? Kill you. Then you go to be with Jesus. We've got to get that in our minds as Laodiceans. And you know what we find is we're going to move closer and closer to the return of the Lord? I believe this is going to be true. I think we're going to find that our greatest sin is going to be our desire to survive. And you see, that's not our greatest sin today because the persecution isn't there. When the persecution comes, phonies are out. And you don't have time. You don't have time to mess around with sin when you're getting your brains beat out for your faith. You know? Man, it has a way of purifying things, but you know what? Our greatest sin in that day is going to be our desire to survive. And look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life 
Folks, listen. Like the people in Smyrna, we may be called on to die for our faith in Christ. And if we are, you know what Jesus says to us? You know know what He's saying here at at the end of verse 10? He is saying, you share in my cross and you'll share in my crown. Our problem today is we're frantically trying to arrange our lives to somehow win the crown without the cross. To have all the glory with none of the suffering. You say, well, man, I'll tell you what. I I, I just don't know. I just don't know if I'd be able to stand in there if I were called to die for Christ. I I want to. I want to think that I would. I I just don't know. Like I said earlier, one thing for sure. You won't have the grace to do that until you need that grace. But one guarantee that we have is that if you will die for Christ tomorrow, I promise you, it will be because you are living for Him today. Let's don't kid ourselves into thinking that if we're not living for Him today, that, but, buddy, if a time comes where we're, I'm called to die for my faith, I'd die for Jesus. Hang it. Forget it. If we're not living for Him today, it ain't going to happen. What would you do? Really, do you you feel like you have a feel on it? If it came down to you denying your faith in Christ or dying for your faith in Christ, what do you think you'd do? And maybe the time will come where we'll have the blessing. The blessing of being able to make that decision. Let me show you one other characteristic that our Lord identifies in commending this church, and and I love this one. Financially and materially, materially, this was a poor church. But spiritually, it was rich. Look at verse 9 again. Jesus says, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. Now, to really understand and appreciate what the Lord is saying, and for us to really get what we need to make make the full application to our lives, I think that we need to understand that what he's saying to the church in Smyrna here, we've got to understand that next to what he said to the church in Laodicea. Now listen, if you haven't been here through this study, the church in Laodicea Laodicea represents the period of time that we're presently living in. And our Lord writes to this church in Smyrna and he says, I know your poverty but you're rich. You know what he says to the church in the Laodicean church period in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17? To this church, he says, you're rich, but you're really poor. Smyrna, you're poor, but you're really rich. And what you begin to find out as you trace this thing through Scripture is that our definition of rich and poor is not always God's definition of those terms what you find is that god contrasts those who are rich in this world as he calls them in first timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 he contrasts those who are rich in this world with those who are rich in faith as he calls them in james chapter 2 and verse 5 and those who are rich toward god as he calls them in luke chapter 12 and verse 21 And the classic example would be the story of the rich man and Lazarus, wouldn't it? 
I mean, have you ever stopped to just look at that story? Who was really the rich man in the story? Was it the one who was rich in this world? Or the one who was rich in faith and rich toward God? And and let me ask you something. If God were writing a letter to you this morning, you know, somebody just walks up to you after the service, they hand you a letter and it's from Jesus. What would he say? Would he say this morning that you're richer in this world than you are rich in faith and rich toward him? Or would he say you're richer in faith and richer toward him than we are rich in this world? You see, I'm, I'm afraid that For most of us Laodiceans, we'd be a whole lot richer financially and materially than we are spiritually, aren't we? I mean, we are rich in an increase with goods, and especially those of us living in this country. Hey, you know what? We're all rich. Are you that rich toward Him, toward God, in faith? And and, and let me ask you this honestly now. I know what the right answer is. I'm asking you to give the honest answer. If a game came down to a choice of one or the other, would you rather be financially and materially poor but spiritually rich? Or would you rather be financially and materially rich but spiritually poor? I know what the right answer is. But I just wonder if we were honestly going to answer that, or if Jesus would answer for us because he knows us better than we know ourselves, what would the answer be? You know what? What we want is we want both, don't we? We want to be financially and materially rich, and we want to be spiritually rich. And do you understand that it is that pursuit that keeps us spiritually in poverty? The pursuit of other things. You remember that? Just chokes it out. Proverbs 13, 7 says, There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Paul talked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 about having nothing, and yet possessing all things. In other words, God is letting us lay out a sea and know that, that you can have everything and yet have nothing. And you can have nothing and yet have everything. And you see, that's what the church in Smyrna had. Oh, listen, their persecutors had confiscated their possessions, their homes, all that they had. They, they made it in that city impossible for them to even hold down a job These were believers who were in abject poverty, but in the whole process of that physical, financial, material poverty, in that whole process, they found in Jesus wealth and treasure and possessed spiritual realities that were without money and without price. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And that's what that church in Smyrna experienced. And yet most Laodiceans, though we are rich, 
through our lust for things, we make ourselves poor. Do you see that? Hello? Luke chapter 1, verse 53 says, He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. You, you can be starving, Jesus is saying, and yet filled with good things. You can be full and yet be totally empty. You see, that's, that's Laodicea. And some of you know all about that because you've got everything that you want materially. You just don't have anything that really matters. Oh, you've got all kind of riches. But when it comes to spiritual riches, you have nothing. You see, our blessing has become our curse. Their curse became their blessing. And, and turn back just a, a page or two to the book of 3 John. Believe it or not, y'all, we're almost done. This, the rest of this is going to come real quick. But, but oh, you, you just got to see what's, what's shaken in 3 John. Not too many people read this book. It's too close to the book of Revelation, you know, and it's too small, too insignificant. But John is writing this letter to a, a beloved friend by the name of Gaius in verse 1. And what I want you to see is in verse 2, John says to Gaius, Beloved, now, now, now think with me, y'all, think. It, it's warm in here today. Think. Don't fall asleep as you look down, okay? Think about what he's saying. He, he writes, John, writing to Gaius, and he says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Now, you see, that's not our normal prayer request in the Laodicean age, is it? You see, in our day, we look at people who exercise their bodies and they are going to, into all kinds of things where they're eating right and doing all of these financial things and laying up all this money and doing all of the right things. And we look at those uh, at people and we pray that their spiritual health would be as good as their physical health and their material prosperity. You see, it's the exact opposite of what he's saying to Gaius. Here's this guy, Gaius, and spiritually... This guy is in such good shape that John prays that his physical health and financial prosperity, he says, I'm praying that they would be in as good a shape. Now, I'm telling you, that's something. And here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to imagine with me that what John... Now, don't let me lose you here, because you need to get this. I want you to imagine with me that what John prayed for Gaius is going to be a reality for all of us in this room this morning as soon as we walk out this door. Our service is it's, it's winding down right now. We're all going to walk out of here, and it's, listen, as soon as you walk out of these doors this morning, immediately, we're all going to be physically and financially exactly what we are in God's eyes spiritually. You following me? You got the illustration? You, you shake your head. You got me? We're going to walk out of here this morning, and the prayer that John is praying for Gaius, it's going to be a reality in our life. And all of a sudden, bam, we're going to walk out that door, and as soon as we do, we're going to be physically and financially exactly what God knows that we are this morning spiritually. Now let me ask you, what would happen to your financial condition when you walk out those doors? 
What would happen to your physical condition when you walk out those doors? You know what? Some of you who drove here this morning in, in a brand new Cadillac, BMW, or a Mercedes, you're going to walk out those doors and go get your car, and you know what you're going to find? That thing is turned into a rusted out 1970 Dodge Coronet. And you're going to get in your style and ride, and you're going to go home to that house that you left, that five-bedroom house with the great room, formal living and dining, finished basement. You're going to drive that car into your drive and find out that that thing has become a two-room, dilapidated shanty. And you walk in, and you find on the kitchen table... There's a stack of something there. And you walk over to it and it's a stack of overdue, unpaid bills. And right next to it is a checkbook and you look into the thing and you find that your checkbook is already extremely overdrawn. But the good news is, you don't have to worry about the bill collectors calling. Because the phone's been disconnected several weeks ago. And, and for the next month, you know what? You won't even have to worry about them knocking on your door. Oh, they're going to come. The problem is you're not going to be there because you're going to be over in the hospital because you are going to be so physically ill that you cannot exist without severe medical attention because remember, physically, your condition is exactly what it is spiritually. You know what? If some of you this morning became physically, when you walked out this door, what you are spiritually, some of you, and I'm not being facetious, if it really happened, some of you would keel over and die. Because spiritually this morning, you know what? You're dead. You're spiritually dead. You've never been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. That was a spiritual death that passed upon all men, and for that, all have sinned. And some of you, I mean, as soon as you walked out this door, if it happened and you really became physically what you are spiritually, you'd be a goner. You know what that tells me? You better do some business in this room here this morning because there is coming a day when it's going to be pretty much a reality like that, folks. Others of you are born again. But if you walked out those doors this morning, you'd keel over too. If you became physically what you are spiritually, some of you would walk out those doors, and you know what? You would immediately be eat up with cancerous tumors. And physically, your condition this morning, you would become immediately terminally ill because spiritually, you have been harboring what Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 calls a root of bitterness. And that root of bitterness has stayed inside of you, some of you, for so many years. You have got so much bitterness inside of you that if you walked out these doors this morning and you became physically what you are spiritually, you'd be an absolute wreck. You know what? You could have taken, you could have taken that bitterness to the great physician years ago. And you know what? It would have been a real simple surgery, but because you've delayed you just let that thing pile up and pile up and pile up. Now, what would have been a simple surgery, now the chances of your survival are really slim. Now, we have an incredible physician 
But some of you are so eat up with bitterness that unless something changes in your life, you, it'll eat you up spiritually. Others of you would walk out this door and you'd be diagnosed with extreme bulimia. Because you know what you do? You starve yourself all week long. And then you come to Sunday and you just absolutely gorge yourself. And I mean, Sunday morning, you're just gorging it in. Sunday night, you're just gorging it in. But after each major binge, you walk outside and before you even get to your car, you puke it all out before it has a chance to do anything for you. And, and you've done that for so long. You're so weak and so emaciated. Your, your immune system is so shut down. You're susceptible to all kinds of sickness and disease so much so that you need to be hospitalized if all of a sudden you became physically what you are spiritually. Others of you would walk out and immediately you'd become deaf. Because spiritually, Hebrews 5.11 says you become dull of hearing when it comes to the Word of God. You know what? I, I don't want to, you know, I, I know it's a little bit warm. You wouldn't believe the amount of people who have used me as their, their Somonex tablet this morning. I mean, I, 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 you guys ought to pay me. <laughs> you, you couldn't, can't sleep at night, so you come in here and, and do it during this time. You know what? You walk out, dull of hearing, deaf. Others of you would be walk out and you'd be immediately struck with blindness because spiritually, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15, you've willingly closed your eyes. Others of you would walk out that door and you would keel over from a myocardial infarction a heart attack you know why because your heart as it says in Job chapter 41 and verse 24 it talks about a heart as firm as stone and as hard as a millstone and spiritually you know what that's where some of you are man your heart is so hard I mean you can come in here and you can listen week after week us preach about the glory of God and, and, and what He deserves from our lives, and yet you can go out and you can live like hell and the devil all week long and somehow come in here week after week and listen to this stuff. We can, we can talk about lifting up our eyes and looking on the fields that are white unto harvest, and we can talk about the, the billions and billions and billions of people who have never one time ever had the opportunity of hearing the Gospel, and it's like, who stinking cares because I'm pursuing my life and my dream. And some of you this morning, if your physical heart became what your spiritual heart is, you, you would not make it past the, the front steps of this church without keeling over of a heart attack. You know what, others of you, maybe, maybe these are too extreme. You know, maybe your situation wouldn't be quite like this because, you know, in the layout of sea in church period, what it says is that most of us are lukewarm. We're neither cold nor hot. Okay, and if we became financially and materially and physically that, you know what it would basically be? We're not behind on our bills. We just can't ever seem to get ahead. And physically, ah, oh, we're not enough. We don't feel bad enough to stay in bed, but... We just don't feel good enough to get anything done. You see, that's, that's that lukewarm. And folks, I don't know what your situation would be. But let me ask you this. If it really happened, okay, now listen, if it really happened, 
that, that physically and financially you would become what you are spiritually when you walk out of this room, if it really was going to be a reality, would there be some things that you would nail down in this room this morning before you walked through those doors? Now, folks, I'm not a betting man. I would bet my last dollar that there's not a single person in this room, including the guy that's running his mouth this morning, I would bet you that there's not a one of us that would not do business with God before we walked out those doors. Because now we're talking about what really matters to us. Our finances and our health. Listen to the call in verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you this morning? Did, did He face you with your spiritual condition this morning? Do you hear His voice? Or are you going to respond to what He's saying? And then lastly, look at the challenge in the middle of verse 11. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. You say, well, what's the second death? It's defined for us in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. Just listen. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And listen, that's exactly where some of you are headed this morning. Because you've never come to Jesus and confessed that you were a sinner and that He was God and called upon His name to cleanse you of your sins so that you could be brought to life spiritually, what Jesus called being born again. And you see, this is the way it works, real simply. If you've been born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. And you have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear. You say, well, I, I thought you said at the beginning that, that we were going to follow this outline and there was going to be a, com a condemnation where is the condemnation to this church here in Smyrna? There is no condemnation to this church. Well, where is the correction? Because there's no condemnation, there needs to be no correction. But let me just say to you, we're not the church in Smyrna, are we? And we're not a whole lot like these believers in that church in Smyrna, are we? Five out of the seven letters that Jesus writes to these churches, five out of the seven, his last word is repent. Not this one. Not Philadelphia. But folks, this is Laodicea. And I know the hour is late this morning. And I know this. I know that because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we walk outside of this room this morning, you know, and if you're a young person here, it's not going to happen, okay? But I wish it would. Oh, I wish it would. I wish we all this morning had to face the reality that's what it's going to be when we walk out that door. Because you know what? We would walk out of this place today a holy people, would we not? Having confessed their sin and made sure that it was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and that our hearts were set aright. And I just challenge you, if you would do it,
for your physical health, if you do it for your financial prosperity, will you deal with what the Spirit of God is wanting to say to you this morning just because the Lord Jesus Christ is God and He loves you and He gave Himself for you? Will you do it just because of that? Let's pray.